Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm speaking to you from Wurundjeri country and would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. I would also like to acknowledge the ongoing role that colonisation and racist regulation has had on First Nations, but also First Nations resilience and survival in continuing to connect and practice the oldest living culture in the world. Emeritus Professor John Braithwaite is speaking to us today. Very, very cool. Um, yeah, look, in, in regulation circles, i.e. the cool circles, uh, we consider John to be one of the foundational thinkers. Um, notice there that I'm pretending that I'm part of those circles now. In 1992, John and Ian Ayres wrote a book that would change the way we think about regulation. It was called Responsive Regulation, Transcending the Deregulation Debate. It helped change the conversation about the role of regulators, which was, it was constantly torn between laissez-faire approaches of little or no regulation and command and control approaches built on almost exclusively punitive interventions. Uh, It's still instructive today. John has been one of the biggest advocates as well for restorative justice, an approach that departs from the uh, punitive or retributive approach to justice that we conventionally see here in the West. John summarized it beautifully as, because crime hurts, justice should heal. So how do these systems of thought go together to address some of the emerging and at times overwhelming issues we face today? Well, John explains that today in a wonderful conversation. So please enjoy this episode, subscribe, and rate the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. All right. Thanks, uh, thanks, John. Thanks so much for, for coming today. It, I was very excited and nervous um, about interviewing you. I, I did joke online that you are the godfather of regulation. Um, and, and so with that in mind, I, I'm, I'm wondering, why do you think regulation even matters? Um, why does it matter to you? Why does it matter to the community? Well, I, I feel that many times my work has been assassinated, so uh, only in that sense do I feel like a godfather. But it is lovely to be with you, Simon, and I'd like to start by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you from Ewan country here on the south coast of, of, uh, of, of New South Wales. So you far away with whatever specific questions you would, you would like, and uh, yeah. Well, thank you, John. Well, so, I mean, a lot of people don't, um, a lot of people don't really understand why regulation would even matter to a community or to social justice. I mean, what would? Why do you think it, it matters to to social justice or or the people you care about? Yeah, well, I certainly do it because I do think it matters a lot. Like when I was working with Tony Mackay and Valerie Braithwaite on, and Diane Gibson and others on aged care regulation, uh, that was because we did see that as a field that was in crisis and where there was a lot of suffering. I mean, we think of ourselves in a free society, but there was, for example, a lot of physical and chemical restraint in aged care and still is to a significant degree. And so, you know, if you tie people up in a chair all day, I mean, what sort of legacy of freedom are we leaving to our older people who are struggle free? So the, the you know, and regulation has worked with that problem. From for example, in the United States, there were regulatory changes uh, uh, more than thirty years ago, about thirty years ago, uh, that resulted in the proportion of nursing home residents who were uh, physically restrained, put aside the chemical restraint, who were physical, physically restrained, tied into a chair, tied into a bed, uh, without the option of untying themselves for large parts of the, of the day, was over 40%. Mm. And after the new regulatory regime to, to put pressure from inspectors who mm. were tramping the beat and visiting aged care facilities, uh, that reduced to under 4%. So a tenfold improvement. And there are lots of areas where, you know, we we tend to, as with 
my work on peace building, people always notice peacekeeping missions that have failed in Rwanda or in Somalia for very good reasons. It's you can't have anything more newsworthy the, than a genocide. Um, but the success stories of peace, uh, peacekeeping are less visible. And in a different kind of way, uh, that's true of uh, bread and butter forms of business regulation mm. as well. So one remarkable accomplishment of regulation is the safety of air travel. Uh, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, it was pretty unsafe to fly a plane on any kind of trip around Australia or internationally in the in the 1930s was 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 reasonably hazardous. But in the later decades, in the mid and late 20th century, it became a lot more safe to fly through the air to get from A to B than to travel across the ground or across across the sea. And that's a bit remarkable when mm. you think about it because it it should be more dangerous to get there. <laughs> so you're going right right up in uh in in the clouds. But the accomplishments there were not so much about punishing safety infractions as they were about reporting near misses and learning from near misses. So I, I interpret that accomplishment as one of restorative and responsive regulation. So if you're a pilot and you have a near miss with another plane, or if you're a control tower operator and do so, and you report it and lessons are learned from, from your uh, mistake, uh, even if it's a mistake that was affected by you behaving unresponsive, you know, irresponsibly with your health, for example. So you shouldn't have been at work when you were in that uh, condition. You still come clean uh, on it. Um, the tradition in that field of regulation was not to be punitive toward you, but to to be appreciative of the fact that we're all able to learn uh, from your mistake your negligence, your recklessness, mm. whatever it was, even your criminality. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, if, if, if you have a, a, a punitive regime, people might, may not be so honest. Uh, and so we've got to have a more selectively punitive regime. And air safety regulation is very punitive mm. if you cover up. Mm. So if you think of George Pell and child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, the way I always think of that is that his real sin was cover up and that the cover up did much more damage uh, than uh, any allegations, true or false, against him as a person. But mm. all the enforcement uh, energy went into uh, into not the cover-up, but the personal uh, vilification, the personal accusations of particular things that he did. They're important, um, but that's that's a lesson from the great accomplishments of uh, air safety regulation, which we find in other areas as well, mm. uh, like, like coal mine safety. You know, we haven't had huge criminal prosecutions of coal mines for doing uh, reckless things, but we've had great accomplishments of reductions in the safety of, of, of coal mines. You know, there were many years early in the century in countries like Britain, the United States, in France as well, where and in China in the past as well, where more than a thousand coal miners were killed in coal mine accidents. Uh, in Australia today, we produce a lot more coal to our shame, <laughs> we produce, to our shame, we produce a lot more coal than those countries did early in the 19th century when they were killing a thousand people to dig it out. But we have, we have many years where there are no coal miners killed mm. in, in that, in that process of extraction. And the even greater numbers than that thousand were being killed years, decades later uh, from uh, black lung. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, affecting their lungs so that the, the, the cost of that part of the coal industry was also uh, stupendous but so what you've got there is a kind of a thousand fold 
improvement in the safety equipment. And in a lot of the worst areas, I mean, nuclear safety is another one. Again, you know, we should, we should have no nuclear reactors, but we must acknowledge the fact that uh, nuclear reactors are more than 100 times as safe as they were at the time of the Three Mile Islands disasters, as me measured by SCRAMs, automatic shutdowns mm -hmm. of uh, nuclear reactors because they've exceeded some threshold of, uh, uh, of safety. So uh, regulation has delivered in a lot of areas, not sufficiently for it still not to be true that what we need to do now is completely abolish the nuclear industry, completely abolish uh, the, the, the coal industry, but the, but the technical capability mm -hmm. of uh, making change along the way to that on safety for the people who work in those, uh, uh, those dangerous industries is, is, yeah, we can learn from that. Huge, huge amount to learn. And um, I'm sure the listeners can understand why I was so intimidated talking to you when you just caressed across um, five or six different policy domains. And um, I think that, I mean, that is more than any, probably more than any other person we've interviewed in this podcast, a compelling case for why regulation matters to virtually every area of social life that, um, that you could come to care about. Um, and I know you talk, talked a bit about there about that kind of, you know, um, automatically or hyper punitive response that we can take um, or regulatory response that we, we can take to things. I, I know in the 1990s there was, um, and, and then the decades preceding that, there was a bit of a, um, an interminable debate between, you know, the deregulation or um, purely persuasion-based advocates who said that the state should, Get out of um, get out of the game and let the market decide. Whereas others wanted that real command control, the other end of the spectrum, a real punitive um, and or command and control uh, type approach to regulation, where there was lots of directors, very prescriptive, and in some uh, situations quite punitive. Um, you wrote a, a a little book with um, uh, Ian Ayres that that I, I think possibly um, anyone who cares about regulation has, has come across. It's called Responsive Regulation, uh, Transcending the Deregulation Debate. Um, I know it's what connected me to this work. Um, uh, what did you try to do in that book in trying to resolve these tensions? And is that an accurate framing of, of what you were trying to do? Yeah, yeah, it is, I think. I mean, if we stick, stick with the nuclear power example, uh, responsive regulation was written after the Three Mile Island disaster in 1979 and after the commission report into what went wrong there. And that commission of inquiry concluded, what, what you had was the view up till 1979 that nuclear power is a very dangerous industry. The meltdown of a nuclear reactor <clears throat> in the metropolitan the uh, United States could could cost hundreds of thousands of lives. Uh, so what we need is uh, a highly rule-based, uh, lots of rules, lots of punitive enforcement of, the, of, of those rules, taking them very seriously by significant sanctions because this is, this this is a very dangerous thing that we're we're dealing with well the commission found that what happened when there was a really serious crisis was that the managers of the three mile island nuclear power plant in pennsylvania were acting like rule following automatons and they were also deeply afraid of losing their jobs uh, if some if this had happened on their watch uh, and it would be found that some rules were not complied with. So they were getting all their people to run around to check whether this rule had been complied with or that, that rule had been complied with. What mm. they needed to be doing, according to the com commission, was to manifest systemic wisdom mm. of the safety management system at the, at the Three Mile Island plant as an engineering system, and then think systemically about what responses are needed in the moment to, uh, uh, to abate the, 
to abate the risk. Whether some mistake was made yesterday in, you know, uh, in not checking this or not checking that was not the issue. What the issue was understanding what was happening and understanding the possible and, and the systemic systemic character of the looming catastrophe and understanding what kinds of systemic responses were uh, were, were were possible. So that led to a different kind of regulation which was more oriented to systems and principles and understand systemic understanding and less oriented to uh, to every you know everything results in a new pile of of rules so that in the clutter of rules there's not so much understanding so responsive regulation was 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 responding to a kind of a a seesawing character of regulatory history where there would be a catastrophe as a result of which there would be a lot more rules and a lot more punishment put in place and then in the decades after after the crisis uh, there would be forgetting of the need for that sometimes there was a need for new rules and tougher punitive approaches for sure uh, and in the decades after that would be erode there would be more regulatory capture uh, and even corruption of regulators and what you would end up with was a you know back to a very soft non-punitive trust business regulatory regime mm -hmm. uh, and the seesawing in itself was counterproductive because n neither extreme was the best way to go. And what we needed was a more sophisticated mix of punishment mm -hmm. and persuasion. And that's what responsive regulation set out to be, uh, particularly through the idea of the regulatory pyramid. So you start with persuasion and the dynamic response. It's not just the the mix it's how you sequence the mix that's mm -hmm. in, uh, that's important in the regulatory design that responsive regulation worked on yes absolutely um, i'll make sure to include in the show notes um any chance i get um uh, i always include the pyramid of sanctions and people roll their eyes <laughs> at me now um, but i always bring it up but um <laughs> But absolutely, it's, it's been a transformative concept in, in the way that we under, understand regulation. And it's interesting the way you explain that because I, I suppose I didn't understand. Um, I understood there, there were those two approaches, but I didn't understand that often you would, um, that the cycle that you spoke about, that it, it might start in a really command control um, uh, process and slip and capture towards that, um, that sort of persuasive persuasion-based slash captured approach. So um, I think that that really articulates the need for that narrow corridor that you have to travel down as a, as a responsive regulator between um, being um, yeah, overly punitive or prescriptive and um, uh, being um, captured by the people you're meant to regulate. Um, so, oh, sorry, did you want to go? Oh, I think the other important thing about responsive regulation is that the risks of capture and corruption are endemic. So it's it's inherent in the nature of business regulation that business ultimately will capture uh, regulators in significant ways. Mm -hmm. There'll be there'll be jobs uh, for regulators who do a splendid job of <laughs> letting industry do things that they should not be allowed to do uh, and so on. So then the other important piece of responsive regulation is third parties in the regulatory process, whether they're, that's the environment movement with environmental regulation or trade unions with occupational health and safety, the consumer movement with consumer product safety and so on. This is that they play that very important role from without them, the inevitability of captured regulation, which is not punitive enough when it should be punitive, uh, it will, will not be remedied. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, we were going to talk about that later, but I think it's a good good segue to, yeah. to that discussion around um, that tripartite sort of third party that that you need to 
hold the regulators accountable. Uh, my, my experiences in mental health and human rights and uh, I, gosh, I, it's, it's a real issue in this space. You know, um, uh, I've worked within and outside of regulators and, um, uh, we do need more civil society. And, and interesting, we use the term consumer and mental health to, to refer to people who access mental health services. I've got my own lived experience as well. Um, and it is instrumental that we um, hold regulators to account to, to better enforcement. Uh, you know, in Victoria, we've had 12,000 complaints and inquiries into mental health services in the last six years, but the regulator has never issued a... Um, a compliance notice and in that time the Royal Commission found that there was endemic breaches of, of human rights and, and mental health laws and so I think it does speak to the need for um, you know critical discussions about the efficacy of regulators in these spaces. I'm sure you the, the same applies to, to aged care or disability where, where I know you've done a lot of work as well. Yeah, there are big similarities, Simon, and we see them coming, those similarities come through with the COVID issues too, don't we, with uh, homebound or institution-bound populations uh, being the populations who have uh, suffered so much of the brunt mm-hmm. of, the, of, of the COVID crisis and our, our regulatory response not being adequate. So, you know, the, age, the, the Australian government aged care regulators stopped going out to kick the tyres at aged care facilities to check uh, that they had infection control systems in place uh, in those homes for so many vulnerable people. Yes, you need to protect your, uh, your, your inspection force, but goodness me, the police were, were, were going out mm. and what the police was doing were doing uh, was not making nearly as much difference to the mm. ultimate death rate from COVID in Australia, and, and this is true in many other countries as well, as aged care inspectors yeah. make. Yeah. Go back to your very first question, regulation matters. Yeah. Um, and so advocacy groups are very important there. Uh, and the advocacy groups, are, uh, the allies of advocacy groups, so, in, you know, in your area, Simon, in, mm. in mental health there's been there have been lots of university uh, professors who have been such important advocates for uh, mental health rights and for uh, adequate enforcement mm. of them and that that's true in a lot of areas from climate change down to uh, occupational health and safety and little works uh, uh, work sites so civil society is a is a multifaceted thing with an interesting mix of grassroots voices and voices who have particular kinds of expertise. I used to actually in the responsive regulation book, I think somewhere we said, well, you know, you can't accomplish that in all areas. Like, you know, what's the third party who's going to uh, check that the Australian taxation office is not uh, captured or corruption, yeah, corrupted, yeah, and yeah. <laughs> both. We don't have we don't have the interest. To, 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 all can benefit at times when the tax administration is a is a bit uh, sloppy, even if it's only for not getting our tax return in on time. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, but that's actually uh, 20, 30 years on. It's turned out that Citizens for Tax Justice has become a really important NGO, and uh, as with mental health, with a lot of leadership from university people. Mm-hmm. Universities are really important. In that case, university people who have tax technical expertise in uh, accountancy and in tax law. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and um, it is one of the. It, you know, it, it depends on the area there needs to be a partnership often between people with technical ex- expertise and um people with lived experience of the of the relevant yeah. issue um yeah, yeah no, i think i think the leadership has to come from below as yeah. you're implying in that yeah. question yeah. yeah 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 absolutely so hopefully um hopefully those listening we can continue to hold regulators to account um i we could do about a 45 hour interview on, on responsive regulation but i, I know that 
we've got a we've got to touch on the other um, uh, huge body. Well, not I don't want to say the other because probably five or six other ones, but um, the other huge body of research you've done, um, which is around restorative justice. Um, I'm wondering. So, what, what's restorative justice? Uh, that that term, even though it's been around for a while, might be new to some people. What's it about? What's it trying to respond to? I guess. Well, with criminal justice, it was about the idea that because crime hurts, justice should heal. But actually, any kind of injustice doesn't have to be a criminal injustice. Any kind of injustice hurts to people, so uh, uh, so justice should should heal that uh, that hurt. Uh, so that's that's the core value ideas and the and the importance of listening to, as you say, those with lived experience, sitting in the circle and listening to them and putting the problem in the centre of the circle, whether it's a, a, a root cause analysis for a, a medical injury that's occurred in a hospital, for example, inviting uh, the survivor of that medical injury or their family if the patient has died into the circle to to be participants mm. in in focusing on the problem what went wrong and what might be done to prevent that problem happening again with criminal offenses uh, a lot of the the thinking about why you put the problem in the center of the circle rather than putting the person in the center of the circle putting the defendant in the dock as it were but just in a different way now you have the problem in the center of the circle in that thinking in 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 criminology because you don't want to stigmatize the offender you want the offender to be responsive to be apologizing to really feel that they're listened to because they really are listened to mm. and therefore buying in to a program of 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 rehabilitation mm. you know one of the uh, surprising findings about restorative justice is that you know when a restorative justice conference agrees uh, that something should be done so some compensation paid to the victim participation of the offender in an anger management program, for example, uh, you would think that when those remedies were ordered by a court, they would be more likely to happen because if you don't complete them, you're in contempt of court and you can be thrown into jail for not doing them. But actually, they're more likely to be completed. You are more likely to turn up week after week at your anger management program. Uh, you are more likely to actually deliver the compensation to your victim if that is agreed in a restorative justice circle. Mm. Why? Because the police that the court relies on to punish you if you fail to comply with the court order, feel they have a lot more things to do than to, sh to, to ensure that Joe and Mary turn up to their anger management course. But your family, those who most love you, participating in the restorative circle, committing to make sure that you turn up every Tuesday night to your anger, anger management program, that makes more of a difference. That, yeah. del that delivers more compliance. Yeah, sorry. No, and and, and that, that um, I've I've been fortunate to just complete a subject with um, Professor Miranda Forsyth on um, um, on restorative justice, and um, one of the the topics or the themes we spoke about is that the law often takes away property of conflict and makes it its own, and and that yeah. sounds something like what you're talking about there that. Um, it sort of alienates people from the problem um, rather yeah. than brings them into it. Yeah, the law steals people's conflicts. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, Nils Christie, the Norwegian uh, theorist, came up with that idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah I mean, I think that's a um, it's a beautiful articulation of it. And um, often people who, in my experience, who who um, are marginalised by systems will often find them, uh, themselves lost in a legal web um, and yeah. sort of just passengers in their own legal problem rather than active participants in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so in, the, in my field around human rights, and, and I, 
I think about um, human rights as being relevant to, and I'm sure you do, aged care, disability, um, uh, even, you know, banking as well, to some banking and finance, definitely mental health is one I speak from. Um, these are often institutions and services um, that, that, that they're harming people, but they're not causing crime. Um, like you, you know, it's an, or it's not necessarily a criminal matter. Um, like you mentioned, what do you think combining restorative and uh, restorative justice and responsive regulation could mean for sectors like that? Yeah. Well, well, the first thing to say on that issue of putting the problem in the center of the circle. So that argument about stigmatization might or might not be as profound with a mentally ill person as with a criminal defendant, but there are definitely stigmatization risks in a badly conducted restorative mm. process where you have a sort of a, a blaming of the victim, a blaming of the uh, mentally ill patient for mm. whatever it is that happened. Um, but beyond that stigmatising, yeah. Can I just jump in? I, so well, the things I witness are more... Um, unlawful breaches of their human rights by mental health services yeah. so 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 um, um that would be my worry is i mean i suppose yeah. to take the stigma yeah, point you'd, you'd argue it could stigmatize the, the the individual clinician i imagine maybe the yeah. the the adjunct to what you're saying i'm not sure yeah if I'm yeah uh, spot on spot yeah. on your comment um so the more important issue in a mental health context mm-hmm. where you have a, a a restorative conference to decide you know what what went wrong in this mm. human rights failure here is not so much just flipping from blaming the patient to blaming the doctor or blaming the nurse, for example, but rather to not put any person in the centre of the circle, but to put the system, you know, back to the nuclear nuclear safety example, mm what's wrong with the safety management system here? How can we improve the system uh, so that uh, mentally ill people have their human rights respected? Mm. Uh, uh, Our human rights assurance system broke down here. Why did it break? How how was, could it be that it could break down in such a bad way? And sure, there more, might, might be, might have been a, uh, a failing on the part of uh, Dr. Smith and Nurse Jones, um, but that's not the main thing. Uh, we, you know, we're all prone to bad professional days uh, in, our, in our jobs. The much more important questions are are about systemic reforms, and they tend to be more liberating for those who suffer as well. So you you know you you can't fully you can never fully compensate someone who suffers a flagrant breach of their human rights, but if they get meaning from the experience of, yep. This was just awful what happened to me. But, you know, as a result of this restorative process that we've been through in the aftermath of it, I have made a contribution to ensure that this doesn't have happen to any other mental health patient. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes me feel good about myself, mm-hmm. good about my mental uh, health system. And, and what's more, I'm going to be an advocate uh, mm-hmm. for, uh, you know, better human rights. Uh, for people in the health system. Yeah, and, and I think that that systems focus is is very important, um, and 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 certainly individual. You know, if you're an aged care worker, you're a disability support worker, or a mental health worker, um, your indiv- individual decisions are constrained within a, the system that you operate in. How do you pair? And, and this is. Um, uh, this is a, a genuine question that sits with me about how RJ would apply in this context. How do you pair that with a system that has historically um, and, and cultures of practice that have historically um, not given much regard to human rights? It's not. It's a it, human rights are a recent. They're, they're they're a recent overlay to the way in which uh, psychiatry is is practiced, and and it might be the same in aged care, or it might be the the same in disability, but. Um, 
the, the reason I, I tease out this question is in, in here in Victoria, we've, we've had a Royal Commission into the mental health um, system and the, the, the tagline is the system is broken. But as a consequence, nobody is individually responsible in that situation. And that's my that's my that's just a fear that I have. And how do we safeguard against um, locating people's decisions within the system that they work? But then all of us as individuals kind of owning our 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 part of that system. Uh, that that's as much a statement as a question, but I'm just keen to hear your reflections. Yeah. Well, I think the key is that the process is deeply participatory. Mm. If, it's, if, if, if there's genuine participation of the most disempowered stakeholders, uh, they're the ones whose rights are most vulnerable, uh, then you, you, you have a better prospects uh, uh, of the rights protection coming to the surface. I mean, we see that in, in all these systems where there has been evaluation research on restorative justice. So, mm. for example, with the standard case of youth justice, uh, you know, we've had restorative justice conferences in Canberra that I've sat in on where uh, a, a, a young person has committed a criminal offence, pretty, seems like a pretty bread and butter, restorative justice youth justice conference come to a resolution the young person apologizes to the victim agrees to do this and that uh, to repair the harm and things are said about how terrible it would be for your family if this happened again and you end up ended up being incarcerated as a result of it and that's terrible not just for you but for everyone in your your family but then all that's done, and at the very end, the mother of this young person, I've seen this happen more than once, says, uh, well, that's great. My son did the wrong thing. He's taken responsibility uh, for it, uh, as he should, and our family is really sorry for what happened to the victim. But our family, you know, Constable, who's there, uh, also has the view that the worst injustice that occurred here was the excessive force you used against our son when you arrested him. And that hasn't been mentioned so far in this conference. And we want to raise that. So that mm. power to do something about rights come, uh, come from the participatory capability, which is genuinely mm. open textured in the restorative process now mm -hmm. if that mother tried to do that in the children's court or the magistrate's court uh, the magistrate would say sit down madam and she would have been silenced mm -hmm. because it is not relevant mm -hmm. uh, to the trial that is being conducted um, in that 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 criminal law process but it is relevant to because crime hurts justice should heal it yeah. is relevant to the restorative ethos and so she has to be listened to and mm. in fact in youth justice restorative justice conferences mothers of offenders are listened to more than anything else they you know we, we in, a, in our research in canberra we we had staff who would sit in the room with uh, old-fashioned technology of stopwatches to time who was speaking for how long and yeah there was more airtime uh, by mothers and overall a bit more airtime by women uh, than by men in the restorative justice so this is that that's the gender equality empowerment point in mm -hmm. the court it's male voices whether they're voices of judges or police or uh, uh, lawyers who have more of the airtime mm -hmm. um, uh, yep, and uh, uh, that's um, yeah. I'm glad that there's some spaces <laughs> where 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 us men don't uh, drown drown out the, the conversation. I, I bet uh, that would be I bet that would be what would happen if that research were done with mental health restorative mm -hmm. justice. I, wanna, I I bet there would be you know more or less gender equality mm -hmm. uh, rather than the normal situation of uh, 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 male professionals. Yeah, um, I'd be interested in the um, equality around profession, service provider versus service user, and um, um, 
kind of those epistemic things of whose whose perceptions count as 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 fact as well. I think that would be interesting. And but what you what you're talking to there, if I have understood, um, is particularly when you talk about um, uh, the the person who's um, uh, who the, the excessive use of force by police and, and bringing that into the discussion it's talking about freedom from non-domination and I know that's another um, another area that that you've kind of framed that responsive and restorative justice um, need to take into account so the, the idea that um, regulation um, whether it's you know regulating an individual like so services regulating the conduct of an offender who's a young offender who's who's committed a crime, or also or the regulator regulating the youth justice services um, to go up a, another level, um, that it should be um, as non-dominant. It should attempt to reduce domination. Um, it, I mean, could you explain a bit more about that and whether I've um, accurately, uh, possibly not, um, explained that? Yeah, that's that's accurate, Simon. Regulation's a dangerous game. It's designed to do good but it can do profound harm and so we need to have a set of principles that will guide us to have a view on what's good regulation and what's bad regulation and from the republican political theory shtick that uh, uh, our ANU colleague Philip Pettit uh, in the philosophy program and I share and participated uh, in developing as a, a, an, a different kind of Republican political theory, which says that the key thing is freedom. The key thing is freedom for mentally ill people, which includes freedom from domination by their disease. Um, uh, freedom from domination by a health system which can be dominating uh, at, at, at times. So it's, you know, the freedom, thin liberal freedom of being able to make more choices is a good thing and part of freedom, but it is too thin. It is, it is too shallow. You need this deeper sense of freedom that I, I am empowered to make all of the choices that would be possible uh, to make, that I have the capability uh, to do that. And, you know, that's another related tradition about freedom, the capabilities uh, uh, tradition of, uh, of freedom that you see in the writing of people like Martha Nussbaum. Um, so uh, that's what we've chosen and we chose it because regulation is a dangerous game that can threaten freedom. So let's make the ultimate value freedom mm -hmm. and always be putting whatever we do to, to that test. So if we decide to put someone, a criminal in prison, or if we decide to incarcerate a, a, a mentally ill person or a person with risk of COVID into COVID quarantine, mm -hmm. um, we've got to ask the question, that's, that is constricting the freedom of that targeted person. We've got to ask the question whether that constriction of freedom will be less than the freedom we create uh, through that regulatory activity. Mm -hmm. And with, with you know, many quarantine activities, in the right context can pass that test. Uh, sometimes uh, enforced um, confinement of the mentally ill can, uh, can pass that test. Uh, you know, a lot of the time it doesn't. Uh, sometimes even putting offenders into prison pass that test. 90% of the time, more than 90% of the time, it does not. You know, I believe that more than 90% of the people who are in our prisons uh, should be released and their problems should be responded to in more restorative and responsive ways with capabilities for escalation. But that's not to deny there are some people who 
uh, attempt murder and are very clear about saying that if they get another chance to kill her, they will. Because mm -hmm. she deserves it and the world needs to be purified of her evil. Whatever that, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that dang dangerous repeat um, uh, murderer uh, uh, is saying, well, well that, you know, yeah, that is a kind of person who yeah. could be, who should be confined in a prison. But there are not many of them uh, who are quite like that. There are usually better ways that involve a less drastic form of domination of a human being than putting someone in prison. It's it's funny you say that because that all. Uh, that 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 principle of non-domination, um, that neo-republican. Um, I tried to get into some of the neo-republican. Philip Petit was very easy to engage with. I bought got some other books, and oh my god, I could not follow. Um, but uh, it's funny that the, that conceptualization um, to me corresponds a lot to a human rights analysis of whose human rights are engaged and tr always trying to. Um, take the least restrictive response possible to achieve a public policy aim and and sometimes that's actually two different people's rights are engaged and how do you balance those but it it, it kind of uh, to me corresponds a lot to the analysis that yeah you're yeah. yeah well the the the, the non-domination framework allows an answer pr provides a method for asking the question well what should be our human rights should we create this as a new human right, mm. meaning that under under no circumstances will we fail to do everything that we can to deliver mm. this as a right. It's not just a good thing to put in the balance. It's something that we're deeply obligated to provide under any and all circumstances. So uh, should we make this uh, a right? Well, we should, if by making it a right, with those very demanding tests of what a, a right entails, uh, will make the world a place in which there is less domination, in which there is more freedom as uh, as non-domination. So that's 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 where uh, you know saying should this be a crime? Yeah. Uh, that's the test because you know something might be very wrong. Um, uh, you know, lying is wrong, uh, but should not be a crime. Uh, 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 infidelity to our partner when we're promised fidelity to that partner uh, is is wrong, but it should not be a crime. We, if we make it a, a crime, the criminal law would become very dangerous uh, in the in the threats that it uh, that it poses to the freedom. Mm. Of, of human beings. It would be an overreach of the criminal law. So that's been, in our view, of the, the, the development of that kind of Republican theory of, of regulation and of criminal justice, uh, the helpfulness of it, just, you know, to, to show when we should create a right, when we should, how should we enforce it to this uh, uh, degree? Uh, should we, uh, you know, cut the hands off thieves who defile someone's right to their property? Um, uh, uh, it, it, you know, this is how we answer the question. Mm. No, we should not cut their hands off because even if it were effective in protecting people's right to their property that they've worked hard to create, uh, the uh, the domination of the hand cutting mm. is is uh, is a much worse thing. Uh, yeah, and we've seen in the criminal law, and, and like you say, even even currently, that the criminal law functions to dominate far too many. Uh, it causes too much domination of far too many people, and and in particular, First Nations Australians who yeah. um, are disproportionately incarcerated. Yeah, um, and that sits within a complex web of other dominations that I'm, I'm sure you, um, yeah. you know. Yeah, that's our great, that's our great national shame to be sure. Yeah, our indigenous incarceration rate. Yeah, well, I mean, John, you've um, 
you've articulated a very rich um, framework there of responsive regulation, providing, I guess, a, a scaled response to harms that occur in the community, but then restorative justice and how, uh, you know, how placing the problem at the centre um, uh, can help um, bring um, the community and people affected by the problem into that resolution process. Um, I guess uh, hearing, if, if people are listening to you today, um, uh, is there is there one thing, one lesson, or is there one thing that you want them to do, having listened to you in this podcast today? Well, restorative justice is about doing with rather than doing something for people or doing something to people, be they mentally ill people, who, whoever. And, and I think that's... Um, that's a good big thing about a restorative framing because it, it, it's, a, it's a simple way of thinking about what can I do that can be put into the context of your life. And we all, we all conf confront different opportunities as to good things we, we can do. So I, I think it's um, my counsel would be about reflecting on your particular situation and ask yourself how can I do something uh, better with because it actually in the television series succession of all places uh, I don't know whether it's the Rupert Murdoch type figure or oh, someone right. so, yeah. so, someone someone says uh, if if you do something yourself you do quick uh, you go quick uh, if you do it together with others, you go far. Oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, that's the, that's uh, the beautiful cat capture for this, for this episode. <laughs> um, uh, that's a that's a beautiful message uh, to leave with, and I think it's something that we can translate at a systems level, but then also at a, at a personal level about the the issues um, that crop up in our lives and what we can do. The ones we maybe cause, the ones we um, maybe suffer from, or a bit of bit of column A, a bit of column B. Um, um, thank you so much for leaving us with that with that message and for your expertise throughout this podcast, John. Thank you, Simon, for your interesting questions.